Well, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Romans in chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and this is the third sermon in the series called The Whole Gospel. The title of the sermon this morning is Sinners All. Sinners All. In Romans chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 21 and, and move through to verse number 25. But the key text of our sermon this morning will be found in verse 23. Well, please follow along as I read in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thus says the word of God. May God bless the reading of his word among his people. Would you please pray with me? Father, I pray that as the prophets and law were filled with the power of the Spirit and the Spirit of truth and of grace and of mercy, so too this morning you would fill me afresh with the urgency, the unction, and the power of the Holy Spirit to, to faithfully preach the word of Christ as it ought to be preached and dismiss and set aside any part of me, any part of foolishness, any part of error. And may the spirit of truth, may me be piercingly clear and clearly preaching to every heart in this room, mine included. For we must hear this word this morning or we die. Father, preach life into our hearts. Preach, preach abundance of life into our hearts. Preach Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. How much sin do you suppose is in the world today? I mean, if you could measure sin, if you could come up with a number a quantity of it. How much sin is in the world today? Would you say that there's more sin in the world today than perhaps uh, yesterday? Would you say that there's more sin in the world today than maybe a century ago? Let me ask a, a real, a, the, the real question that really needs to be said. The real question is, how many sinners are there? That's the, actually an even more important. How many sinners are there? Sin is a topic that's touchy in our society today. No one wants to think about sin or at least their own sin. They're willing to think about others' sin and maybe even create headlines and a lot of buzz about someone else's sin, especially maybe a, a famous figure, maybe a political figure or some sort of celebrity, and we're the sin of their lives is called to our attention, but we don't really want to think about our own sin. 
when it thinks about our own sin, we even tend to be just a little biased. We're deferential to ourselves. We're really actually ill-equipped to self-diagnose our condition of sin. To answer the question of how much sin is in the world today, we really must best look at the cross. You see, the cross tells us how much sin is in the world and how much sin is in our lives. That's where the answer lies. To put it simply, there is sin and there is the cross. There was enough. There was enough sin and there was enough cross. It's that simple. We have learned over the past several weeks the first principles of the whole gospel, that they are founded upon there being a a good creation. And included in that creation, that good creation was a purposeful and intentional design that was brought about by not just any creator like Sid on Toy Story, not just any creator, but one who is himself a righteous one. We remember that God is righteous. He doesn't merely do righteous things. He doesn't just not sin. But God is purely blameless, and all of his acts of creating and all of his acts of ruling that creation flow down from his throne that the psalmist says in Psalm 89, 14, that his throne is established in two parts. His throne is established in righteousness And it's established in justice. Last week, we learned through the preaching of Pastor Golden that everyone who would seek to measure up to the righteousness of God must be unalterably marked by the cross work of Christ and will thereby bear that mark out through Christ in a demonstration by the means of their personal baptism in water following their faith in Christ. But not everyone arrives or not everyone is arriving at this this state of confession of God. We know this. Many in this world, many in our lives, maybe even many, many, there may be some in this room, are untouched and really unmoved by the truth that God is righteous. Many in this world are simply not even conscious of their sinful state. In our recent Providence Bible Institute, the author of our textbook pointed out that there could be four reasons that they find in the scriptures why people may not be entirely conscious of how just unrighteous they are. He points out these four reasons that are biblical reasons. It may be, number one, that God restrains the full force of sin in their life. They may not have, for example, seen the full consequences that their sin could bear out because God has been merciful to them and stopped those consequences or the large portion of them from falling back upon them. So they have not exactly reaped all that they have sown because of God's mercy. So they remain unconscious uh, towards their sin, without conscience towards their sin. Or secondly, maybe it could be that sin itself blinds the unbeliever to its full reality and force. They remain blind to the full condition and even the effect of the sin. They don't simply see how sinful they are. They remain blind. The third reason that's cited is that there's a hardness of the human heart that perverts 
a person's moral sensibilities. It leads them to a, a general insensitivity to their sin and their sinfulness. And so this perversion of their heart, the hardness of their heart, reigns and it results, it grows, if you will, more callous. Their, their sinfulness hardens and numbs and calluses their hearts so they continue in sin, not really even perceiving just how sinful they are. Or fourthly, he mentions, and this is significant, that God has not yet openly judged sin. This remains for a time yet to come, and God will openly judge sin and all sinners. And so many people remain unconscious or unknowing of how sinful they are, or even that really they are genuinely sinners, because God has not yet brought them before the throne and that terrible day. And so they, in the meantime, remain unrepentant or discount just how sinful they are. Or maybe they even deny the magnitude of how sinful they are. Well, in our passage this morning, we're looking at a very revealing and ultimately dreadful declaration. And it's found in verse 23. Likely, many of you who have walked with the Lord for some amount of time have memorized this verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a very revealing and ultimately dreadful declaration. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Let's be sure we understand that this part of the gospel message is like this before we even attempt to move on learning about the solution towards our sinfulness. So let's sit in this declaration this morning as part of our teaching on the whole gospel. There is a creator who is righteous, and there are people who are unrighteous, who inhabit his creation. Just like any malady, any sickness, any disease needs to be rightly diagnosed We, as humans, need God to reveal to us just what kind of condition he finds us in. We are in his laboratory, we are in his medical office, and we need him to give us the diagnosis. And we need God to be truthful with us. Just like we wouldn't want any doctor to whitewash the news of a deadly infection taking residence in our body, so too we would not want God to pass over or to take lightly the terminal condition of sin in our lives. In both, in both the medical, the physical condition of a proper diagnosis and in the spiritual condition of a truthful diagnosis, we expect that with the right diagnosis that there ought to be a hope for the right kind of solution to be applied. But first, we have to come to the right diagnosis. We don't want to mistreat. We don't want a wrong prescription. So we need the right kind of diagnosis. And so we land, first of all, in taking apart this verse into three sections. And the first part we need to understand is that is that all sinned. All sinned. That sin has penetrated. It has affected the whole sinner's being. It has infected every part of the human being. All sinners, all humans, have become sinners. 
all have not sinned to the same degree. We have not all sinned, for example, some of the same sins or to the same sins, the same effect or the same outworking. But if any man has sinned at all, he has sinned. It has qualified him to be a sinner. He has failed. It may be many times that he has sinned in a certain way, or it may be few, but in God's view, it is already done. And in God's view, all of our sin in the moment, in the past, in the present, and then the future, in God's view, all of our sin is past. Even your sin for tomorrow, God sees as past. God looks upon all of man's sin as if it was in the past. It matters not when it occurred. God sees our sin as a historical fact, a part of our record that is unable to be rewritten. It is part of our reputation. It is part of our record, inalterably. And really, this is good news that it's a historical record. It's good news in this way. That means that all of your sin has been accounted for already by something that has historically happened as well, by Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So our sin is all historical from God's point of view. Even the sin you are about to do has been reckoned by God as something that he has already accounted for. It does not take him by surprise that you will walk into Monday morning with unbelief, unfaithfulness, anxiety, disobedience, rebellion, neglect, lovelessness. He is not surprised by tomorrow's sin. He has already reckoned it. He has already made an accounting of it. So while we have sinned, meaning the past tense, that's how God looks at it when he seeks to appropriate all of our sin, past, present, and future, to the body of Christ on the cross. There wasn't a sin that you or I or anyone ever committed that wasn't appropriated in God's reckoning of justice for that sin in the punishment of Christ on the cross. All have sinned and all are sinning and all will sin. And God knew all of that. But this sin has caused us to collapse short of the finish line. It has made us ill-equipped. It has made us incapable of reaching something that is necessary for every single one of us to reach. Because of sin, we cannot attain something vital to the purpose for which we live and the destiny of our lives eternally. We are all falling short of the glory of God. So all have sinned, and secondly, all are falling short. All are falling short. This, by the way, is a present tense verb. It means we keep falling short. Of our own outworking, of our own work, we are continuing to fall short. The word fall short means to collapse, to fall behind, to be inferior to. And the tense of the verb here that Paul is emphasizing is that we are all continuing, we continue to come short. It isn't apart from our sin that we come short. The sin has caused us to collapse. The sin has caused us to fall behind in the race. It has caused us to come short of the finish line. The coming short is the result of our sin. We had come short in the past, and in this moment, we still remain coming short of ourselves. 
And so the sin of man causes him to come short, even when he tries to make the mark, even when he tries to hit the mark. And further, Paul uses this to indicate that this isn't something that happens to the person or that something that is outside of the person, external to the person, but this coming short is in him. It is something that he owns. He's not able to expel. He's not able to change of himself. It is inherent within him. This coming short, this falling short is in him. It's part of his nature. He can't extract sin from himself by himself. No man, no, man must have some sort of external force. We need an outside force more powerful than sin to separate the condition of sin from ourselves. We need someone to come and take it from us. It's so bound. It's so intricately wound. It's part of our nature. It's wholly inherent within us. And by this falling short, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. We recognize that there is no coming closer than one another. There's no coming closer than one another. We all fall short. The standard is perfection, so it doesn't matter the degree. This reminds me of a Japanese company uh, who attempted to execute the first commercial landing on the moon just last year. It ended in a dramatic situation, really a dramatic silence, in which the mission controllers were unable to establish communications with the Hakuto R mission. This mission, this landing um, vehicle was designed by this commercial company in Japan to be the first vehicle that was by a commercial industry in Japan to land on the moon. It was launched by our very own SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket in December of 22, and it was scheduled to land on April 25th, 2023, just less than a year ago. But just short of the moon, they lost communication. The Hakuto fell short. Now, it didn't matter if this, if this landing device, if this, this shuttle, it didn't matter if it, if it had launched uh, and not even entered the earth, it broken through the earth's atmosphere. It didn't make the moon. It didn't matter if it broke through the earth's atmosphere and made it into what we think of as space just outside of the earth's atmosphere. You see, the moon is an average, and because the orbit of the moon around the earth is not a perfect circle, it averages about 238,855 miles away. Did you know the moon was that far away? 283,855 miles away. How can we even see the moon? It's that far away. And just at the last second, the Hakuto R lost communication with headquarters in Japan. But it didn't matter where it fell short. It could be a mile from landing on the moon, or it could have been just off of the launch pad. It fell short. It didn't matter what degree. It didn't matter the distance that it was able to travel. It fell short. The standard was the moon, and it didn't 
land successfully. In this way, we could begin to understand that the perfection of the righteousness that God has, that we have learned about in our previous sermon, is absolute blamelessness. When we fail to reach the destination of God's absolute blamelessness, his absolute purity, his absolute righteousness, when we fail to reach that mark, it is altogether for us a total loss. It didn't matter how close we thought we could come. And here in the scripture, God says, it didn't matter. You fell short. You fell short. And so in this way, we begin to understand that the perfection of the righteousness that God has, that we learned about in our previous sermon, is absolute blamelessness. God doesn't just do righteously. He is altogether and purely righteous. That's the standard. It's not like the soap commercial that tells us that we will be 99.9% pure or clean, as real as what? Ivory. Nothing less and nothing what? More. I want more than 99.9% of the way to the moon. I want more than 99.9% of the way to God. Something has to get me there. Because all fall short, even the 99.9%. Ivory isn't going to do it. No one is able to say that they are in any degree holy, pure, and righteous. You see? Nobody can say they're 99.9% pure. Because it's 100% or zero. This isn't a grading scale. And so there's no metric for how righteous a person can be except the words the Bible uses that are given by in two definitive and complete categories. You're either righteous, that is, you've reached the moon, you've reached the blamelessness of God. Or you're unrighteous, and that would include those who almost reached their who think they did, but they didn't. There's only two categories. It's not a gray righteousness. It's not an 82.7% righteousness. There's righteous and unrighteous, and from cover to cover in the scriptures, that's the only two categories that all humans fall into. This is the whole gospel. So even if a person might conclude that they are in some way almost righteous, they are still a dismal failure. They have fallen short. And all their shortcoming has infected and contaminated anything that they might even consider righteous or that looks righteous. And the point is that they fell short and there's no glory in falling short. That's what this scripture is saying. All have sinned, all have fallen short, of the glory of God. There's no glory in falling short. No glory in falling short. We recognize that in in our great competitions, like in races, for example. The one who falls short does not win a medal. 
No participation prize in the righteousness of God. The point is that they fall short and there's no glory in that. There's no glory in the unrighteous. Unrighteousness, the falling short of God-likeness, is terminally damning. It doesn't just mean that you don't get the prize. It means you don't get the prize and you're eternally condemned. And so there's nothing pretty or praiseworthy about sin. And certainly there's nothing notable about falling short. It's not um, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again situation to try to get to the moon or to try to get to God. The word of God says simply that no matter how hard we try, we are falling short constantly and never will attain to a status worth anything close to the admiration and the exaltation of God. And so we're utterly, in God's sight, as ones who fall short, we are utterly gross, we're totally despicable, we're irreparably stained, we're detestable, and we're miserable failures. That's what we are, biblically. We're falling shorters. We're quitters. We're half-attempters. We're failures. We missed the mark. We're sinners. Every human, all have sinned, all fall short. And to understand what it is that we just collapsed short of, we learn that it wasn't just a race and it wasn't just a personal goal. It wasn't just being a good person. It was something far more important and actually of infinite value. So thirdly, it was the glory of God. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Glory in this verse means something that is used several times in Scripture, but I think is helpful to see in John 12, 43. Jesus looks at the Pharisees, and he looks at the crowd, and he says, these Pharisees look for the glory of men rather than seeking after the glory of God. Well, what is the glory of men? Well, the word is helpful here to replace here. These Pharisees look for the praise of men. That's what that word glory means in John 12, 43. They look for the praise of men rather than the praise, the approval, the approbation of God. And that's what this word glory here means. There's another way in which glory is used in our scriptures, and it talks about the infinite perfections of God, the vast array of his blameless and pure parts of his nature, of his all power, of his all knowingness, of his sovereignty, of his aseity, of his transcendence, of his imminence, of his, of his purity, of his holiness. All of those are part of what we think of as a theologically defined his glory. They are all together part of his glory that radiates. But in this context, in Romans 3.23, what is used here as the word glory means the bar of God in the way of his, his approval, his delight. So what this means is that man has failed to earn, he has fallen short of earning God's approbation fallen short of God's endorsement, fallen short of God's approval 
or more commonly thought of fallen short of God's blessing, his praise. So we have collapsed. We have fallen behind. We have not attained unto a praiseworthy status before our God because God's standard has not been met for such praise to be earned. And so simply, man in his sinful state is not worthy of praise. And without the praise of God, here's what's at stake. Man is doomed, man is damned to death without the praise of God. Man is doomed. You say, I never really wanted to reach the mark anyways. What's the big deal? The big deal is that there is no middle ground. The curse of sin has made it so that there is no gray area of living and there's no gray area of destiny. There is either the blessing of God, which contains abundant life in Christ, eternal joy at the right hand of God, the removal of a hellish condemnation, all of that is the praise of God. Or the opposite is without the praise, the mark, reaching the mark. There is the curse and banishment of God Almighty. The abandonment of God including the removal of the blessedness of his presence, the absence of his love, the absence of God's mercies in your life, the absence of God's grace, and including and over all of that, if that wasn't punishment enough, not merely the removal of God's grace in your life, but including the active wrath of God, poured out and borne out through eternal flames in unending darkness without finality. And so the mark is the praise of God if you do not reach. The praise of God, if the the blessing of God is not upon you, you are not only experiencing the removal, the absence of God's grace and mercy in your life in a passive way, but in an active way also, you will bear about in your body, in your soul, eternally, a condemnation in hell, eternally, consciously, without finality. So there is either the blessing, that is the glory of God, or there is the curse. So you collapse, you receive curse. But if the mark is met, then you receive blessing. And so just as all men are guilty, as was said, for all have sinned, so the offer of salvation is to all men. So notice in verses, notice verse 22. Notice verse 23 is a little bit of a sandwich meat. It's like the meat in the middle of the sandwich. Notice verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, 
for there is no distinction. That is, that just as all have sinned, there is the righteousness of God through faith for all who will believe. And then notice in verse 24, and, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul inserts verse 23 between 22 and 20, 24 to reinforce the need of people for righteousness. And we learned there's three reasons why we need righteousness. Number one, there's no difference among us all. We're all doomed. There's none of us who have righteousness. There's none of us who have righteousness. There's no difference among all humans. Take a visit to the prison. You'll meet men who are there who are incarcerated for crimes who uh, do not seem to have committed maybe a vile or violent crime as others who are incarcerated with them. In the prison, you'll find bloody murderers. And then next door in the next cell, you may find a prisoner who may have just stolen something. Maybe, and we think of it to a lesser degree of a serious crime. But the range of crimes is expansive as represented by the prisoners in that prison. Yet each of them are behind bars because they all have been declared what? They've all been declared lawbreakers. And there's no difference in them in the way the law has treated them. And there's no difference among us as the people of this earth. We all have sinned and we all stand condemned. And so there's no difference. There's no distinction. Paul says at the end of verse 22, there is no distinction. And so though men differ greatly in the nature and extent of their sinfulness, there is absolutely no difference between the best and the worst of men, if you'll say it that way. Why? Because all have sinned. Second. So the second reason why people need righteousness is because there's no difference among them. And secondly, because all have sinned. And then thirdly, because all have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And no man can ever claim that he is not a sinner. The Apostle John writes this in 1 John 1.10. If any man says that he is, has not sinned, he calls God a liar and the truth is not in him. No man can ever claim that he's not a sinner. It is a condition that is part of the human race since a person's conception. If you're human, you're a sinner. And every person who has ever lived has also made sinful choices. Not only have we come into this world knowing and, and manifesting sin, um, but we make sinful choices. And so we rightly carry about the moniker of sinner upon us. And so all have sinned. And all have fallen short, collapsed, fell behind. And if there's no difference when it comes to man's need, if all of us without distinction are sinners then the good news is that there's no difference in God's meeting that need. If we're all sinners, if we're all behind bars, if we're all lawbreakers, then there's no difference in how God is going to come to us and offer for us forgiveness and freedom. How God is going to solve the problem of us missing the mark because to him it didn't matter if we were 99.9% there or 1% there. We need him to help us to make the mark. Well, let's pray.